Come on. Welcome to Money Savage, a savage approach to personal finance. This is George Graubacher, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, the strong and powerful Romina Bacha. Romina, so excited to have you on. Romina leads a team of exceptional fiscal and economic experts as the director of Grover, as director of the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget in the Heritage Foundation's Institute for Economic Freedom. Romina, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, So here at the Heritage Foundation, our mission is to build an America where freedom, prosperity, opportunity, and civil society flourish. And so much of that comes through the federal budget. What Whatever the federal government does, it does first and foremost uh, through the budget, whether that's regulating our lives, whether that's spending money on government programs or using uh, its authority to tax. Everything ultimately comes from the budget. So we're dabbling in in, in a lot of issues, lots of policies, and one of our flagship products for that very reason to make sense of Uh, This massive uh, budget is uh, our blueprint for balance. So we actually go out and introduce a congressional budget proposal every single year just to show the American people what it would really take to balance the budget, um, How, if we can do so without raising taxes, um, and what programs the federal government is running that would be better served if they were handled in the private sector or by state and local governments. And I have a team of five experts here working with me um, to to do this work um, every year, working on the federal budget and taxes, appropriations, budget process, um, you name it. So I'm I'm curious, how long does it take to put the blueprint for balance together? Well, the first time we did it, it took us almost six months because we were starting from scratch. And it's actually surprisingly difficult to figure out what federal programs even exist. Um, This may sound strange, but even the Government Accountability Office, when they were asked by Congress to tally all of the federal programs and activities that agencies were running, uh, they weren't able to come to a conclusive answer. Uh, The federal government has gotten so large that we can't even figure out all the things that it does. Uh, Now that we're um, sort of in the swing of things and updating and adding to it, uh, the production takes about three months. It it is a big lift, and we're basically doing what the Office of Management and Budget does for the president's budget every year, and that's they they have 500 people on staff, and I've got five. So it's a very different uh, process. Um, And then the budget committees in the House and Senate are supposed to introduce a budget every year. And we're really trying to influence those uh, documents with our blueprint for balance. Got it. Excellent. Well, that is that is fascinating. Um, Do you have a sense? You you probably know how long it takes um, the president, whoever the president might be, their team to put their budget together every year and and introduce it to Congress. Yeah. Um, From what I understand about the process is they're doing a lot of this work uh, in August uh, at the Office of Management and Budget, even though the president's budget doesn't come out until February. So by Christmas, uh, the process 
internally is basically done and then it's just putting finishing touches on it and getting it into production. Uh, but most of the process happens uh, during the year and gets pretty much wrapped up in the fall. Got it. Thank you. Well, it seems there's always so much to be focused on and so many things that attract our attention. One of the things that's been really top of mind for me lately has been has been the national deficit. And a couple of months back, I went to the usdebtclock.org website and was pretty pretty astonished. If people have not been there, it's it's I think it's pretty interesting. It shows all of our expenditures and tax money and all this stuff just what read on one screen. And I know that that's a big part of your work. Um, so I was excited to have you on to talk about the aspects of the national debt that you're most focused on or maybe are most concerning to you. The, the growing deficit fueling what's already a massive and uh, growing rapidly national debt is one of uh, my primary concerns. And what I look at there is... Um, What's driving that growth in the debt? Because if, we're, if we want to control the growth in the debt, we need to tackle those programs that are fueling the growth in the debt. Uh, and there's almost no conversations taking place in Washington at this time at all to tackle those drivers. Um, the, the deficit this year is projected to reach a trillion dollars. And... Um, that is huge, and especially since it's on an upward trajectory, it's particularly troubling. What makes this deficit particularly troubling as well is that we find ourselves in a period of economic growth uh, that's been prolonged and that's been amazing. Uh, we have low unemployment, uh, growth uh, is looking strong. However, last time we had trillion dollar deficits, we were in a recession. And the reason we had those trillion dollar deficits was because of the recession, because uh, tax revenue dropped um, as more people were unemployed, businesses weren't selling as much. Uh, what happens when the next recession comes if we're heading into it already with a trillion dollar deficit? Uh, that's really troubling because that could mean that that deficit could blow up uh, even much more during that recession. Um, and that would significantly uh, tie the hands of legislators to do the kinds of stimulative measures that they took uh, in the 2008 recession, where they passed the stimulus pass, uh, package, where they uh, provided tax relief, anything to try and keep the economy going, and where they provided assistance for those people who were out of work through no fault of their own. Uh, and we're not going to be in, in a position like that when the next recession comes around. Um, so what's driving that? How can we put uh, controls on those programs, that's what I concern myself with because of the impact these huge deficits in debt will have on average American people that doesn't get talked enough uh, about. Because ultimately what matters is the spending, and the spending means that we're going to pay higher taxes down the road and we're going to suffer slower growth because of the spending we're doing today, because it's not for investments. It's not for things that make us more productive and allow us uh, to, to, to have more opportunity and to be wealthier in the future. It's doing the opposite. It's consuming resources today that could be invested for the future uh, and saddling younger generations with massive amounts of debt 
that will mean higher taxes for them, higher interest rates, making it more difficult for them to borrow for their first car, to get to work, to borrow uh, for a home, uh, to borrow if they want to start a business. All of those things will be made more difficult for that generation, and they'll face those difficulties at a time where they'll also have to pay higher taxes because of the spending and borrowing the federal government is doing today. Got it. So you, you referenced that there's not a lot of talk about the main drivers that are fueling the deficit. What are those primary drivers? If you look just over the next 10 years, 85% of the growth in spending and therefore the growth in deficits, um, you can trace back to just uh, three major budget categories. And those are, first of all, major health care programs. So Medicare and Medicaid are the primary drivers. Uh, next up is Social Security. So you, you have, you have a, a number of programs that are affected by the aging um, of American society, by the demographic changes that we are witnessing, by the fact that people are living longer, but they're not necessarily working longer because we have these programs that encourage them to retire early and get support from taxpayers. Uh, the third budget category after healthcare and social security is interest on the debt. And that is simply a symptom of the growing national debt. So that just shows us how quickly the debt is growing and the cost of that is reflected in interest on the debt. Now, if you take an even longer run view, so over 30 years instead of 10 years, 100% uh, of the growth in spending and deficits as a percentage of GDP or as a percentage of our economy, you can trace back to just major healthcare programs, Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security. So you, you're not going to fix this problem. You're not even... You're not even being serious unless uh, you're talking about entitlement reform. And that's what other countries have had to do as well to get their budgets um, uh, under control when they've suffered a fiscal crisis. Um, uh, Sweden and Switzerland and many European countries and even Japan have already made reforms to their entitlement programs. And it's long overdue that we start this process in the United States because it gets harder and harder to do. Also, the longer we wait those programs are kind of like the Titanic. You make changes today, it takes a very long time, years, decades, for some of those changes to take effect and bring you those savings. Like an increase in the retirement age uh, takes a very long time uh, to take effect. You, you, you generally want to exclude people that are uh, already near retirement to allow um, those people who will be affected by the, chance, uh, the change to plan for it, to be able to save more on their own to provide for their health care and living needs in retirement. And that just makes it super difficult. So now we're seeing, we're seeing the iceberg ahead of us, but we haven't made any movement to avoid it yet. So we're just uh, straight on heading for that massive iceberg, which I would say is, is the national debt that we're accumulating by not addressing uh, the entitlement programs. And it seems to me that we are a long ways off from probably having any substantive or meaningful conversations about that. Um, in fact, quite the opposite. It sounds like a lot of the language in the media today is that insurance for everyone is a is a right. It's not a privilege, um, and, and, and language of that nature. But what would be some what what would be some ways you mentioned um, entitlement entitlement reform? What, what would be some some levers that we could pull to to 
to right the ship, for lack of a better term? We, we need to tackle healthcare first and foremost, uh, because that uh, what we find in um, developed countries and rich countries like the United States, healthcare is uh, what economists refer to as a luxury good. What that means is that as your economy grows and your population becomes wealthier, uh, we, we consume more of that good. We consume more health care. Um, and health care is also one of the uh, is, is much more expensive in the United States than in most other developed countries. And what are the drivers behind that? How can we reduce um, the, the health care costs, ideally without sacrificing quality? And I think there's a lot of a low hanging fruit. Uh, first of all, uh, in healthcare in the United States, more than half is now controlled by government programs, and they have uh, very un, um, outdated and ineffective rules that basically encourage unnecessary testing for the purpose of billing codes and so that hospitals and providers can get paid. And that's one of the reasons that uh, healthcare costs are going up, is that there isn't really a market here. Um, Rather, this is very much a centralized and controlled system where the government being such a large actor, both the federal and state governments uh, through Medicare and Medicaid, uh, controlling half of this market has really created massive distortions in terms of pricing and the services that are available to people. And the patient isn't uh, at all at the core of this process. It's between uh, providers and third-party payers rather than uh, patients uh, and what's best for them. So we need to um, adopt a system that allows for market forces to send signals in this space and to adjust prices um, by uh, market means that reflect um, the quality care that the American people deserve and what we can afford um, to purchase as well. And that would mean instead of these open-ended entitlement programs, uh, a system that is more based on a defined contribution uh, where individuals uh, who can't afford to buy healthcare on their own uh, can get help. Uh, but overall, we need a system that's more responsive to individual needs and ability to pay. And one movement in that direction that's been very promising have been health savings accounts, basically high deductible health plans paired with a health savings account. We've seen uh, some success, especially in businesses, to reduce health care costs as uh, patients have become more aware of costs and starting to shop around more and, for example, choosing cheaper generic drugs over brand names uh, by being able to see those savings in their own accounts. Um, so that's one area. And reducing subsidies for people that don't need help uh, with their health care. There are massive subsidies, especially through Medicare, uh, for wealthier individuals that could very well provide for their own health care, um, but the taxpayer is supporting them. So better targeting uh, federal and state assistance to those populations that truly need it instead of um, open-ended uh, subsidies for everyone, uh, regardless of need. Uh, those are two changes uh, in healthcare that I think could, could make a big, could have a big impact. Uh, but also um, what the regulatory impediments to opening up new health clinics, to buying 
um, medical equipment to provide uh, services to the population at lower cost, you see um, you see a very corrupt crony market in the space in most uh, states where it's very difficult for innovative providers that want to reduce costs and create services uh, to do so without having to jump through all sorts of regulatory hoops and licensing requirements. And, um, and, th and that makes it also difficult to reduce costs. Got it. <clears throat> do you have a sense or what, what is your opinion or your thoughts on why we're not talking more about these, this, this iceberg that we're heading towards? Well, in many ways, it's because politicians are spending other people's money and the way to get reelected is to give people what they want and not talk about the trade-offs involved. So what we're seeing is politicians really taking a so-called free lunch approach, pretending like there are no costs to the programs and to the spending that we're doing today. And they so far have been able to get away with it because the United States has been able to borrow uh, both from investors abroad and domestically at fairly low uh, interest rates. And the Federal Reserve has also monetized a large portion of our national debt. In fact, um, since the Great Recession, about one third of the federal debt uh, generated over this period um, is held by the Federal Reserve. So we're, we are borrowing from ourselves in the sense that we are just printing money to spend um, and hoping that inflation won't take hold uh, down the road. But I think this is a very risky and dangerous predicament. Um, there are no fiscal rules in place either that would uh, bind uh, politicians to living within their means or at least living within a generation's means. Uh, we're really seeing a... Um, a, a burdening of the next generation of children not even uh, born today that have absolutely no voice in our political process having to bear the brunt of the costs that we're imposing on them uh, today uh, because we aren't paying for the programs um, um, with taxes today because that would be politically unpopular. Instead, um, politicians continue to turn up the spending spigot and putting it on the national credit card uh, with no consideration for how this is going to impact uh, younger and future generations. Um, and we're letting them get away with it. And that's the problem. Yeah, I can definitely see that as a problem. So you talked about some of the ramifications that, that future generations could potentially see if this isn't addressed in the form of high interest rates, making it difficult to or not necessarily feasible to take on an auto loan or a home loan and then higher taxes. Um, something that's been on my mind as I, I, I work in the retirement planning space and you see so many Americans that are not doing a good job of saving for retirement. How do you think that, that could play in? This, this is a very important consideration as so many Americans have come to rely on federal programs like Social Security to provide for their needs in retirement and also have come to rely on uh, Medicare as their primary way of obtaining health care um, in retirement. So um, people aren't taking enough responsibility, I think, for their own retirement needs because they've been told not to worry about it, that uh, Uncle Sam is going to take care of you. Uh, but that's simply not true. Both Social Security and Medicare are severely underfunded. 
Um, the day of reckoning it will surely come. Nobody knows exactly when, but ma major policy changes uh, will be necessary uh, to address those uh, programs. So the best thing to do, to the extent that people are able, is um, to save uh, more for their own needs and also to demand to, ha to have more control over their own retirement and healthcare dollars. I believe that Social Security is playing um, a, a role that it is not well suited for, that the best role that it can play is to provide a, um, a, a bottom below which uh, nobody falls. So kind of like a universal benefit that keeps uh, individuals above poverty. Uh, but we shouldn't be taxing people so heavily for uh, this program when them investing those uh, funds on their own in private retirement accounts that they own and control, they could have a much more comfortable and secure retirement than what they can expect uh, from the government, especially with this program being so severely um, underfunded. So individuals, too, should be diversifying and not think that they can rely um, solely um, on the government. These programs were never intended to play this role, and they are—they won't be able to do so because it's just going to be too expensive. Got it. So, what would you encourage people to do who say, "I I agree with what Ramina's been talking about"? Um, how can I have a voice? Should they write their elected officials? Should they email? Should they call? And what should they be telling them? Yes, all of the above. So they should uh, save for themselves and provide the, themselves with other options and self-insure against what might be coming in terms of policy changes and higher taxes in the future. Uh, and in terms of communicating with their uh, legislators, we're in a, a democratic republic. Legislators um, get elected by the people, so they need to hear from their constituents. And um, also writing letters to the editor of local papers can be very influential. Of course, calling a member of Congress can be very influential. And people always think, oh, I'm just one voice. Um, what can I possibly uh, affect? But it's it doesn't take that many phone calls to get a legislator actually pay attention to an issue. Um, my colleagues here at Heritage Action, which is our uh, lobbying and grassroots arm of the Heritage Foundation, um, they've done some research uh, polling members. How many calls, letters uh, does it take for them to really pay attention to an issue to recognize that there's some uh, movement behind it? And uh, it's about 30 or 40. It's actually a low number. Um, so... Hmm. Getting together with others in your community that care about these issues, that want legislators to pay attention to them, and staging some calls can be tremendously uh, impactful. Um, also using social media and tweeting at those lawmakers, um, calling them out, holding them uh, responsible and accountable. There's a new website um, colleagues of ours at the Institute to Reduce Spending have put out, I think, that people um, might enjoy taking a look at and that could help them hold their lawmakers accountable. It's called spendingtracker.org, uh, spendingtracker.org. And what it shows is all of the votes that legislators have taken, individual legislators, and the total fiscal impact 
detract from from those votes. How much did they vote to spend and how much of that is deficit spending? So um, we need more transparency and accountability um, so that uh, constituents can use those tools to hold their lawmakers accountable and make their voice heard. Excellent. I think that that should be a very empowering thing to hear that you know, really only takes 30 or 40 calls to, uh, to, to, to get on the radio. So excellent. Well, Romina, um, give us some, some closing, some final thoughts, and then let us know where people can learn more about you and the work that you're doing. It's um, The national debt seems like a very abstract issue, but the actual effects of it on our lives are not abstract at all, because what it will mean is an economy that provides less opportunity, uh, lower growth, Uh, meaning fewer job opportunities and lower wages for America's workers. Uh, An economy that has higher interest rates if we don't address the national debt as the federal government crowds out borrowing in the private sector. And that will make it difficult for people to attain financial security and peace of mind in their lives. Um, Those are very direct and very damaging effects that are going to have the worst impact on the most vulnerable in society, on minorities, on low-income wage earners. Um, This is a moral crisis for our country, and uh, we need to start paying attention to it and taking action to change it. And I uh, recommend a couple of tools that the Heritage Foundation has made available to help people do that, to help understand the, the magnitude Uh, of this crisis and what's driving it. And uh, one of those tools is uh, federalbudgetinpictures.org, federalbudgetinpictures.org. That is a website that demonstrates um, in very easy to understand graphic graphic ways um, the scope of this crisis and uh, what's driving it. Excellent. Well, Savage Nation, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Romina your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Uh, Check out the federalbudgetinpictures.org as well as the other resources that we talked about. And I will list some of Romina's contact information in the notes of the show as well. Thank you again, Romina. Thank you so much for having me. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we are all in this together. What's up, Savage Nation? Please support the show by subscribing, leave us a review, and definitely feel free to share us with somebody you think would like it. Come on!